the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You're listening to the Pastor Scott Show podcast. Have any questions or comments? Email Pastor Scott now at PastorScott at KKLA.com or tune in live weekdays from 3 to 5 p.m. And now, here's Pastor Scott. Hey, everybody. Pastor Scott here. Good to be with you today. Have you ever done the salad bag walk of shame? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's when you go to the fridge and you pull out the bag of salad that you ever, you didn't even open, or maybe you just ate a part of it, and you have to walk it to the trash because it's gone bag, gone bad, and then you replace it immediately with another bag of salad that you just bought that you probably won't open or eat that either. This is something that uh, I've done a few times and I I have wanted to swear off of it and I've worked really hard to do that. You know what? About 40% of food is tossed for various reasons in the United States. Did you know that? 40%. And when you see so much hunger and so much need, when you just think about that number, you think, uh, first of all, this is terrible. Secondly, there's got to be a solution. With me is a man who has been working to solve this and uh, somebody that you need to meet wherever you are. His name is Bill Bracken. He has been a nationally renowned chef for over 35 years in the hospitality business, and he was at the top of his game. He graduated with honors from the Culinary Institute of America. He began with what was to be a long and successful career with acclaimed hotels and restaurants, including the Peninsula and Beverly Hills, the Four Seasons Hotel, which is now uh, the Island Hotel in Newport Beach. And he was literally cooking for the rich and famous But then in 2008, the Great Recession happened. And then fast forward to 2011, Bill found himself unexpectedly uh, unemployed. And uh, what happened next is a great part of his story and what he's doing now with what's what he calls Bracken's Kitchen, and it began with a food truck, and now he is feeding people, rescuing people, uh, teaching people how to cook, and uh, saving the food that we throw out. Let's welcome to the Pastor Scott Show, Bill Bracken. Bill, welcome to the Pastor Scott Show. Thank you, sir. Truly an honor and pleasure to be here. It's great to be, great to have you here with us. And Bill, how did this come about? So first, tell us tell us what the Bracken's Kitchen is. We'll come back to all the different things that you do. And then how did you get there? Yeah, Bracken's Kitchen, we're a nonprofit hunger relief agency right here in Orange County. Our mission statement says through food rescue, culinary training, and our community feeding programs, we're committed to rescuing, repurposing, and restoring both food and lives. What that means is we just get to go to week or go to work every day doing what we love to do most, cook tasty, nutritious meals. In the process, we rescue tons and tons of food and keep it from going into the, the dumpster. And we train a lot of students at risk, young adults, for a, a path out of poverty. Hmm. You know, one of the things that you like to say is that it's not just feeding people, it's it's nurturing people or or giving them uh, nutrition. What's the What's the phrase that you use for that? Well, we talk a lot about nutrition insecurity as a, as opposed to food insecurity, because let's be honest, here in America, no one's truly starving like you see in third world countries. But the right. nutrition insecurity is, is huge when you see someone that is obviously overweight and unhealthy. Uh, and it's not because they're eating too much, but what they're eating and where they're getting the food from. 
you know, when you're struggling in America and all you can afford to get is some bread or some rice and beans, that just leads to leads to long term um, health effects. So we really uh, we truly really try to focus on that nutrition and security as well. Let's talk about uh, your personal story and um, how did Bracken's Kitchen come about? Yeah, I, I often like to say I'm a modern day Jonah story. Um, I kind of look back at my life and my career, my childhood growing up in a small town in the Midwest. I now know God has been leading me uh, to this place for my whole life. And uh, I don't, I think it happened just the way it was supposed to, because I certainly wouldn't have been ready to do this um, many years earlier. But in 2008, when the economy uh, tanked and I watched a lot of really good people lose their jobs, <laughs> And that's the first time I felt I apologize for my uh, phone going off there. It's a great ringer, we'll though. Make sure, yes. <laughs> we'll make sure that doesn't go <laughs> off again. Um, but, um, you know, when I watched all these really good people lose their jobs when there was no jobs out there, I mean, to me, the face of hunger changed right in front of me. People with still had a nice car to drive, a home to go to, had nice clothes to put on, but they literally couldn't pay their mortgage. They couldn't pay their rent. They couldn't peel up, put a meal on the table. And that's when I first, you know, felt called um, – to do something. Um, and like any brave, strong man of faith, I just ignored God's call and put my head down and kept right on working because I also, um, uh, didn't want to end up on the, on the, the, the lines in the lines of the unemployed during that mm. really tough time. Um, my wife, um, uh, and I just got married a year and a half later. My son was born. I had two older kids. So I really just put my head down and focus. But then in 2011, uh, the inevitable happened. And I, uh, as we like to joke about, I got quit, um, was thrust into the lines of the unemployed. And, um, you know, this used to be my biggest fear. Um, I truly was a slave to money and job, not because I needed fancy things or drive fancy cars, but this fear of providing for my family. And this, I mean, it is one of our, my first and biggest um, stewardships of providing for my family. And that really, uh, really uh, drove me for years. But yeah. um, it was it was almost like uh, God just took off the shackles of the fears and everything because suddenly I'm unemployed and the world didn't come to an end, man. The sky didn't fall down like I thought. I mean, I literally remember sitting in the parking lot of the hotel I worked at when when I was let go, and I'm like, "Wow, the world goes on." I'm driving home, and I think the only other time I had a very eerie feel, a similar feeling to that very eerie feeling was the, you know the day my mother died, and I left the hospital and went driving down the road, just like when I lost my job and life goes on. Yeah. It doesn't stop for anybody. So um, it was then I knew that God was really calling me. And um, and again, like the Jonah story, uh, I ran the other way. <laughs> I didn't end up in the belly of a big fish like Jonah, but I ended up in the belly of a pretty awful business um, partnership with a restaurant. But, um, you know, God kept knocking on the door in 2000. Um, 13, we finally decided it's time for me to really do something, and Bracken's Kitchen was founded. And what led you to that? You were talking about you're talking about the call of the Lord, and you moved from a place where you are really one of the top chefs, right? You probably had your picture in the frame in front of the restaurants, right, that you worked <laughs> on, and which always makes me laugh when I see the the chef on the frame, like at the IHOP or something. That's ah, not the same thing. Yours is a <laughs> yours was a big deal. And now you're you don't have that. And uh, what happened next? You you felt the call of the Lord to do something very different. What was that? Well, first of all, I don't think I ever had my picture on the front. Of oh, you didn't. It was it was in the elevator of the hotels. Oh, in the elevator. Yeah, it's always somewhere. To come down to the restaurants. <laughs> um, but you know, again, I I knew that God was calling me to feed people. There's a few passages in the Bible that stood out to me back then. Luke nine thirteen. 
uh, Jesus replied to the disciples, you've given them something to eat. And it's like, okay, God, uh, the only thing I know how to do is to cook. So um, I, I, I don't think I had a grand vision, but I knew I wasn't going to open a food bank or a food pantry or, uh, you know, I'm not going to be on the corner handing out peanut butter and jelly sandwiches like um, a lot of wonderful people try to do just to feed the homeless. I'm a chef and all I know right. how to do is cook. So, okay, God was calling me to cook. We spent a lot of time and trial and error, trying to figure out what that would look like, trying to understand the nonprofit world and learn about it. I mean, I'm 48 years old when I lost my job. And it's the first time I've been employed since I was 12. And so it was a whole lot of emotional ups and downs and worrying about my family and, and the whole nine yards trying to honor God. Um, but you know, we eventually landed on the idea of the food truck. And uh, it wasn't through any genius idea of mine. I'm sitting at a Starbucks and I didn't even drink coffee back then, but I'm sitting at Starbucks trying to figure out what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And a food truck went down the road and ding, 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 the light bulbs went off. Oh, I'm just going to bring food to people. Of course, then the big challenge was, well, how do I find the people that need it? So, um, but, you know, we landed on the idea of the food truck bringing tasty, nutritious meals to people cooked from scratch. Um, and that was truly the beginning of it. I had a vision of, uh, what this might look like in five years. Um, uh, we're in many ways far beyond that and not quite there at the same time because I envisioned five food trucks that were spending so much time on the streets. But now we're, you know, 17,000 square feet. We'll do over 2 million meals this year, rescue over 300 tons of food, and we're training students for Path Out of Poverty. So in many ways, the vision has gone way beyond me because uh, it's like, okay, God guide us and show us what to do. And boy, has he done that. Yeah, you know, the the vision of food trucks has changed over the years. You know, you said uh, you saw the food truck go by and, you know, tasty, nutritious food. Nutritious was not something that ever went with food truck, really, until the <laughs> <Absolutely>. last <laughs> the last few. Tasty, yes, but you don't want to know much more than that. Um, you know, why is it important to have, uh, you said, you talked about how it's important that we have nutrition food, nutritious food. That's important to you as, as a chef, somebody who cooking food, is really an art more than even just uh, something to do to survive. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, one thing I've learned along the way is that food is truly the conduit that God has given us to reach people. Mm. Uh, And I've, you know, I've early on, I, I volunteered and spent time with some other hunger relief agencies here in Orange County and tried to get the lay of the land, even though I knew the players, but really what happened, how they did it, what's out there. And I saw uh, the way people were served. Um, One particular organization who will remain nameless, I'm not here to speak ill of anybody, but I watched them come out with food, set up in the parking lot of a church. They threw some tables out there, threw uh, some food out on the tables and handed to people. There's no chairs to set in. Um, You know, they're not a tablecloth on the tables. It was just really quickly done. And I mean, I sat there volunteering and helping and here's a dumpster right here and here's these people sitting on the curb right beside the dumpster eating mm-hmm. dinner. And it just, there was something about the dignity that really hit me. And, you know, and, you know, part of it is also I spent 25 years feeding the top 2% of the population. Uh, how can I hold on to some of that? And, you know, so when we set out with the food truck, it wasn't just what we fed, but how we fed them in a safe location, tables and chairs to set out, tablecloths over the tables, music playing, and really you know, put on an event for them, if you will. I mean, if you're living in poverty in Southern California or even, God forbid, homeless and on the street or uh, homeless living in someone's garage or, 
you know, three families in one house. I mean, life is hard enough. So yeah. we figured if we can give them an hour or two uh, just to escape life. And, you know, one of our uh, volunteers said we're delivering hope one tasty meal at a time. And that really became our calling card. It's like, you know, if there's nothing else these families and people could look forward to in their tough life, they can look forward to that night every week where that red food truck comes out. And, you know, as the as the Hispanic kids in Santa Ana called me, Uncle Bill comes up and comes out to show uh, feed them. And uh, again, we learned that the, the food is a conduit that God has given us to reach people just to love them. Because, yeah. you know, it's one thing to hand them a, a sandwich or something else. But when you come out with a meal made from scratch, served in the manner that we serve it, uh, it, it tells them that we care about them, that their life matters, that we love them. Because, I mean, I think that's what Jesus has called us all to do. You know, I bet that the, when Jesus fed the 5,000 in that story, I bet that was really good fish, right? And, <laughs> and really good bread. Like, I don't know if it's Dover, Sol, or Salmon, but I'm sure it was pretty good. It yeah. had to be good. Well, we know from the story of turning water to wine that the wine was good, right? So the, the fish and the bread must have been amazing. Uh, and I think that's a great example of the the humanity and the dignity that is really necessary, not just to uh, feed people, which is great that everybody's doing that. Whatever is happening, we want people to be fed, but there's something more. We really want to solve the problem. You know, you're listening to the Pastor Scott Show. My guest is Bill Bracken, and uh, he runs Bracken's Kitchen, and uh, they have a, a great ministry nonprofit that is dealing with the problem of hunger, food waste, and also job insecurity and education. You know, let's talk uh, about hunger. Uh, hunger is maybe a bigger issue than a lot of people think. Uh, a lot of absolutely. people are hungry. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. When, when well, you, before I, go ahead. Go. I'm sorry. No, no. Go ahead. <laughs> well, before I dive in, that I got to go back because you you talked about Jesus and the fish. Uh, I'm not a theologian. Yeah. I read my Bible, but I'm not an expert. But I really believe that Jesus more than anybody understood the power of food because yeah. time and again he was criticized for dining and eating with the sinners and tax collectors, not playing soccer with them, not going on a hike, but eating with them. Food is just such a powerful thing. It truly breaks down all the barriers. And there's no better way to intimately get to know a person than breaking bread with them. So if we really want to try to have an impact on someone's life, you know, it, it can happen through food. And when you talk about having that impact and the need here in Orange County, there's one statistic that just uh, still shouts at me as loud today as it did 10 years ago that hasn't changed much at all. Here in Orange County, 48% of all school-aged children are on the free and reduced meal plan at school. Hmm. And in the state as a whole, that number jumps to 59%. So while we're sitting here chatting and at lunches over at school, and I know there's been a lot of changes in government programs and Governor Newsom has tried to do things to, to change that everybody gets fed, but one out of two kids at school won't eat, eat lunch without the government's help because their family just can't put that on the table for them. And it's just, it's this hidden, hidden crisis here in Orange County. People just don't know about it. We don't know what hunger looks like. Our idea of hunger is a cover of, um, oh my gosh, what's the magazine now? But it's a, it's like a national geographic. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. yeah. It's a, you know, a, a, a child starving from or, you know, suffering from severe acute malnutrition. That's our only idea of hunger. We don't know what it looks like, but it looks like you and I. It looks like that family who just can't afford to put dinner on the table. The parents who barely have enough food to feed their kids, so they skip their meal. And and then, you know, go to the dollar menu at the drive-thru or something, just trying to get yeah. something in, in their bellies. And then that leads to the 
nutrition insecurity like we talked about earlier. When we have this kind of hunger and at the same time we're thinking about the amount of food that gets uh, thrown out, you know, as well, what is the solution that you at Bracken's Kitchen have come to to try to, to solve this? Absolutely. Well, you know, California passed landmark legislation a few years ago with the goal by 2025 that we will reduce by 75% the amount of organics or food going into the landfill. And of that 75%, 25% of that food needs to be used for its intended purpose to feed people. So not just, you know, put a compost bin on everybody's front door, which is happening right now. Everybody's getting them delivered to their homes. We're not just sending everything to anaerobic digestion, but truly use food for its intended purpose. Um, you know, so the key is really working, you know, we can't do anything at Bracken's Kitchen with your bag of salad that you mentioned earlier at home or my cucumber in the bottom of my drawer, but working with the farmers, working with the suppliers, working with the the vendors to stop the food waste before it becomes waste because food doesn't become waste until we throw it away. So if you walk through our freezer now, you might, you might find a, you will find a, a big boning Kobe, New York state Kobe prime meat that, um, beautiful thing that you'd probably spend 80, 90, a hundred dollars at a steakhouse for, but a meat supplier didn't get it sold in time. They were forced to freeze it. And once it's frozen, they can't sell it. So it comes to Bracken's kitchen. Mm. You'll find shrimp, you'll find lobster, you'll find all sorts of chicken and things like that. That's just, it didn't get sold. Um, grocery stores, they all have on their, on their meat, you know, sell or freeze by, right. you know, once, once Ralph's or someone, passes that freeze by date, it, it goes out the back door. They don't put it in the freezer over here and discount it for safety reasons. It goes out the back door. We call that grocery rescue. So, you know, I'm a meat and potatoes loving country boy from Kansas. Um, I won't apologize. I, I, I love my meat and potatoes, but I, I, I have a firm, firm belief that we have a moral obligation if we're going to take the life of an animal, we need to use it for its intended purpose to feed people. To slaughter an animal, then throw forty percent of it in the landfill is just to me that's that's wrong. Yeah. Um, so we really work to to intercept that food before it gets to the point where it can't be used. We get pallets of beautiful Italian San Marzano tomatoes from Italy that uh, because the cans were dented, they can't sell them. I mean, there really is crazy reasons why we throw things away that make no sense at all. And the worst and the biggest one is that that arbitrary date that's on everything best buy use by right. sell by it is it's simply created and designed to protect the manufacturers that can't be sued right you know, um it, it isn't spoiled by you're gonna die if eat it after this date or nothing <laughs> uh, we had so much food goes to waste because of that so we'll take in that product and we'll open it we'll you know with professional chefs we'll determine is this good is this not uh-huh. good and we'll well, turn it into tasty, nutritious meals. And what do you do with those meals? So this sounds much bigger than uh, just on the food truck. What do you do with all those meals? You know, every now and then I, I look around and I wonder, how do we get this point? And ironically, we just drove to Palm Springs over the weekend and back, and we passed two huge Amazon facilities on the 60. And I wonder how Jeff Bezos started with the bookstore and I believe Seattle or somewhere his garage. online in his garage and how he got to this. And we're, we're obviously not even close to Amazon. I mean, not even the same, shouldn't even be seeing that in the same sentence, but I look at what we're doing today and it's like, how did we get here? And it's just, 
you know, through the grace and guidance of God. But we have 55, I think, right now, agency partners that pick up meals from us on a regular basis. Um, uh, we do a lot of work with some of our uh, unhoused uh, living in shelters. Um, so we'll deliver hot meals to shelters. We have actually a staff at a, a shelter in Costa Mesa cooking on site. Uh, meals go out hot, uh, ready to be served for other agencies like the Hub up in Orange mm-hmm. is formerly Mary's Kitchen. Uh, um, I'm trying to think of the name of the lady. Her husband's a, a, a pastor of a church in Orange. Just a wonderful group of people that just lobs on the homeless there. You know, we got, got a lot. Most of our meals go out frozen, either half pans that are packed for family for food safety. We freeze them and send them out individual package meals for college students or homebound seniors. We send out quarts of soups and stews. You know, everything from New Song Church down the road, from Church of the Southland to a higher ground in, in Anaheim. We just got a, a great group of nonprofit organizations that uh, do the hard work. We, we do the easy work, just cook. And they're the ones out there getting it to the people on the front lines. Yeah, you know, that's a it's an incredible thing and you know, it's funny when you look at the uh the analogy of uh you know, Amazon but that's a huge thing but you've been able to do something to go from unemployed getting a food truck to this. This is the call of God in your life. Uh can you stick with me for one more segment cuz I also want to talk about what you're doing to train young people to to be chefs, to know how to cook. Can you hold on with me for just one more segment? Absolutely. All right. Be honored. Thank you. You're listening to the Pastor Scott Show. My guest is Bill Bracken. You can find out more at brackenskitchen.org, B-R-A-C-K-E-N-S, kitchen.org, brackenskitchen.org. We'll be right back with Bill Bracken as the Pastor Scott Show continues. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Pastor Scott Show podcast. Have any questions or comments? Email Pastor Scott now at pastorscott at kkla.com or tune in live weekdays from 3 to 5 p.m. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Pastor Scott Show. My guest is Bill Bracken from Bracken's Kitchen. Brackenskitchen.org is the website of uh, Bill's organization that he started that is dealing with a lot of the problems that we have with hunger, but also food waste. And we have been talking about how Bracken's Kitchen started with a food truck, and now it's uh, distributing food and creating food that it gets from restaurants and grocery stores and other places and prepares it. And it's going to a lot of agencies around town that are feeding people. Um, Bill, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Uh, Bill, you know, if I were to take five five different careers that I would pick other than what I'm doing, chef would be in the top five. I love to cook. And uh, I just now even have a kitchen big enough to actually do something. I just don't really have the tools or the time, but uh, I try to when I can. You know, how, what brought you into uh, becoming a chef? What led you that direction in your life? <laughs> well, growing up in a small farming community in Kansas, there wasn't a lot of job opportunities. And most kids worked out in the fields either tossing bales of hay or detasseling corn and things. And while I love being outdoors, that meant riding my bike or playing in uh, uh, water, the the, the lake, the creek, or the swimming pool. Um, But my sister had a job in one of the two local restaurants in town, and she managed to get me a job when I was 12 uh, uh, washing dishes. Before I was 13, they had me cooking, and I'd always loved cooking at home. Uh, When my mom went back to work when I was about six, I started having to fend for myself, and uh, I found out that I actually have a knack and a, a talent and a skill for it, and I was good at it. And I graduated high school, and right before I graduated, I sat in the counselor's office because I was a counselor's aide, a library aide, a cafeteria attendant. Um, uh, 
I had everything I needed to graduate, but one of two classes. So I was taking all these electives because I knew I wasn't going to college. And the counselor, Mrs. Miller, asked me, so, Bill, you're graduating in a couple of months. What are you going to do after high school? And it's like somebody just hit me over the head with the two by four because I hadn't thought about it. I was the youngest of four kids. I think mom and dad was done with kids by the time I was in high school and never really talked about it. Uh, but she recommended I go to college, vocational school in a little vocational school in Atchison, Kansas. And thank God she did. And that led me to the CIA and to eventually the Four Seasons Hotel in the luxury hotel world. That is uh, that's a great story. I love it that you remember her name is Mrs. Miller. Absolutely. You know, people, She'll always be Mrs. Miller. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, people who have a moment where they give us direction that's correct in our life, we remember them, don't we? Yeah. You know, that's something that I think you are doing through Bracken's Kitchen. You have, you know, part of the, your program is to rescue food that would otherwise be thrown out by grocery stores or other places and obviously feeding people who are hungry. But also you have what's called the culinary training program through Bracken's Kitchen. Tell us about that. Absolutely. You know, we I could tell you story after story from my last 11 years almost now of God moments we just don't have the time for. But the tail end of one of these God moments for me was at a after school program for homeless kids uh, in Santa Ana. And it truly was a God moment when God confirmed to me that I was right where I was supposed to be. Again, I won't tell you the whole story. But at the end of that night, I was standing out there in the playground. We were shutting down the truck. And I looked over here and here was all these kids. They all affectionately Hispanic kids called me Uncle Bill. I always joked that I'm the only white boy or widow uncle they'll ever have. And over here was all the parents sitting on their, the picnic tables after dinner. Just, you know, we built community right here in this little place of, you know, 180 people we fed every Tuesday night. And it hit me. Oh, my gosh. 30 years from now, these kids are still going to be here. But the difference is they're going to be adults sitting over here and it's going to be their kids on the playground and it was then that this concept this word that i've heard so often finally made sense to me and that's the cycle of poverty and it really is a cycle that you just can't escape it's so hard i should say to escape and it was then that truly our trio of services was born i had to train people uh, we feed people and we rescue food and i didn't know what that was going to look like it took us a long time to figure that out but we spend so much time showing our volunteers how to use a knife and cut an onion so they don't cut their fingers off. We can even help you, Pastor Scott. Um, I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, it took us a long time to figure that out. We did a lot of trial and error. But during COVID, we completely revamped uh, our approach to it. And it's just like, okay, God, what do you want us to do? Charlie, our chef instructor, a strong, strong man of faith, came to us through a nonprofit called LA Kitchen. And we just completely revamped our program. I never wanted to run a school. I'm not a teacher, but we have more of a school than we ever have had. We, we built out an amazing curriculum. There's eight students in the kitchen right now, all young adults who uh, just looking for something for their future, a better path. They love food. They love cooking. Uh, and, you know, right now we have uh, some of our graduates working in some of the top restaurants in Orange County from Marche Modern and Crystal Cove to, uh, Boscat Kitchen to the farmhouse at Rogers Garden. Just amazing stories of these kids finding a future um, in the culinary world. And here's what you, you have is not not merely feeding people, but nurturing them, like you said, with nutritious food, yeah. but also direction and yeah. in life. And that, that does end that cycle of poverty if you can go that direction. Absolutely. I, I got to tell you, I um, many years ago, I, I volunteered. I started 
my journey volunteering at the Orange County Rescue Mission, trying to figure out the nonprofit world. And a gentleman there who worked in the kitchen told me, Bill, be prepared to have your heart broken. Mm. And I had no idea what he was talking about, but man, I have. And yeah. when you hear the stories of some of these young kids that come to us and the abuse and, and uh, just the neglect and everything they've been through right here in Orange County that you never would see it. Uh, horrible stories. And then, you know, I said earlier that the, the food is a conduit that God has given us. We've truly been able to just reach people to help them. And of course, we have opportunity to share the love of Jesus, to talk about Christ, to share the gospel when the time is right. Um, but, you know, when Jesus told the disciples to feed the 5,000 in Luke nine thirteen, you give them something to eat. Um, he didn't say feed them and preach to them and give them the gospel. I think just feed them. And that's what we've tried to do just to feed people. And then from that, we get these amazing opportunities. I mean, Ephesians 2.10 says, we're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he's planned in advance for us. And God made me a chef. And all these years, I thought it was to feed Sylvester Stallone and Tom Cruise and all these people. And now I realize what it was always for is to this this end right here where we're at now, we I truly get to use the talent and skills that he's given me to have an impact on people's lives. And the culinary training program is just the latest amazing part of what we do here. You know, being in that position, you're you're a completely different position where you're a a celebrity chef and you're you're feeding the the rich and famous. There's got to be a different sense of calling and of worth in, not that it's not worth being a chef and do that. Somebody's got to do that. And somebody's sharing Christ with those people through that, you know, probably, right? Somebody has a different call. But in your call, this seems like this is what you were made to do. Well, you know, many years ago when we was trying to build Bracken's Kitchen, it wasn't going to be Bracken's Kitchen. This wasn't about me. In fact, I didn't think I'd be doing it full time. I thought this was something I had to do on the side. And God, I was still going to have mm. to have a career and a job to take care of my family. That's the story for another time. But a, a dear friend of mine who uh, unfortunately is no longer with us insisted uh, we call it Bracken's Kitchen because of my success as a chef. And my name is fairly well known, at least here in Southern California. Uh, and I never realized the impact that would have because there is a world of people out there that's like, how did you do that, Bill? How did you go from feeding that top 2% to the bottom 10%? And why? I mean, I got chefs all the time still ask me, don't you miss this or that? And I mean, I realize uh, there's a world of people out there that are just lost and going through the motions and in life, but looking for something more. What else is there? And I realize that my story is, is something that can help them. And, you know, I've said, time and time again that Bracken's Kitchen has done more for me personally than anyone we've fed. I mean, yeah. God has changed me and touched me at a soul level, and I wouldn't give anything to be able to do the old Vulcan mind melt if you're a Star Trek fan, to, to just share what God has put inside of me through this, to truly let people see um, what Martin Luther King said so many years ago, that life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? When you serve others like Jesus did, Man, it just changes your life forever. It truly does. It truly does. You're listening to the Pastor Scott Show. My guest is Bill Bracken from Bracken's Kitchen. You can find out more at brackenskitchen.org. Bill, how can people connect with you and help you at Bracken's Kitchen? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. I mean, obviously, like any uh, nonprofit, uh, we talk about time, talent, and treasure. We run a business just like any others, and so many people get confused about that because uh, the word nonprofit, uh, we got a budget, right. we got tax reports, we got everything. 
The only difference between us and a, and a regular business is a, we don't get to keep any of the profits at the end or leftover money because there are no profits. And we have a whole lot of reporting to do to the IRS. So, I mean, I got a $9,000 electric bill sitting on my desk right now, $9,000 for the month. So, you know, time, talent, and treasure. If you have the time, want to come volunteer, visit our website, click the volunteer button up in the corner. If you have some talents and you can help us design a website or repair equipment, whatever it is, again, we're running a business. Of course, the treasure, we don't, we don't survive while we have a really strong social enterprise and we earn a lot of money through catering and other things. We still need the, the generosity and support of those that God has blessed with extra. You can find out uh, how to do this at brackenskitchen.org. It's B-R-A-C-K-E-N-S, brackenskitchen.org. Bill, any final thoughts you want to leave with people? This is a great ministry, a great calling that God has given you through Bracken's Kitchen. Thank you. I mean, I, what I said earlier, Pastor Scott, man, I'm, I'm deeply involved in my church. I have so many friends. I see them struggling, wanting to get involved, wanting to serve, wanting to volunteer, wanting to do things, but they just don't have the time. And I would just encourage all of you, not for me, not for Bracken's Kitchen, but for you, wherever your heart is at, wherever you're at, get involved, serve, give back. It will truly change your life forever. There is, there's nothing that can replace doing something for someone who can do nothing to ever pay you back. It's pure generosity and charity uh, at its core. And that's what really changes our hearts and souls in amazing ways. It's absolutely true. Bill Bracken from Bracken's Kitchen, thanks for being with me on the Pastor Scott Show today. Thank you, sir. All right. Uh, once again, the website is Bracken's Kitchen. I encourage brackenskitchen.org. I encourage you to check it out. It's B-R-A-C-K-E-N-S, kitchen.org, brackenskitchen.org. We'll be back as the Pastor Scott Show continues. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Pastor Scott Show podcast. Have any questions or comments? Email Pastor Scott now at pastorscott at kkla.com or tune in live weekdays from 3 to 5 p.m. Now, back to the show. And let me say, I hope many of our colleagues agree the Chinese government and other U.S. adversaries should own zero, zero agricultural land in our country. I believe that. I mean, they're taking back our pandas. You know, we should take back all of their their farmland. That was Pennsylvania Senator uh, John Fetterman talking about taking back the pandas or taking back farmland uh, because the Chinese government is taking back the, the pandas. Serious issue there, but uh, he was dressed in an unserious way when he's saying that. Just a little follow-up on that because today we've been talking about dressing and how it you know doesn't matter or not the way that we dress, the way we present ourselves. And I just thought I would follow up on that because today the Senate reversed their rule and actually passed a rule about how people should dress when they're on the floor of the Senate. Welcome back to the Pastor Scott Show. This is Pastor Scott. You can join the conversation at 888-528-2557, 888-528-2557. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, the Senate, John Fetterman, his shtick, if you will, is the the hoodie and the shorts and the sandals or flip-flops, and that's that's what he wears in the campaign trail, I guess, to sort of uh, relate to the blue-collar worker. Did you know that he's got two degrees from Harvard? Did you know that? I bet uh, that I bet most people don't realize that. People in Pennsylvania knew that, but uh, a lot of us didn't know that. Anyway, that's kind of his shtick, and he wanted to keep doing that uh, while he's in the Senate. And the Senate Majority Leader last week or the week before said, "Yeah, you can go ahead and uh, dress that way." Nobody liked it. Nobody on either side of the aisle liked it. And in fact, uh, I think in all the calls, we must have had I don't know 
25 calls probably on that subject. I think only one in 25 uh, thought it didn't matter what he wore on there. Most people think you should dress uh, appropriately depending on the situation you're in. And uh, anyway, I thought I'd uh, I'd update you on that because I, I found something else interesting, though, that the Senate did about this in the whole area of how we dress and, uh, you know, what's presentable, what's appropriate. So what happened today is uh, the Senate made the dress code for the United States Senate um, something that they actually voted on. So before, it's interesting that they didn't really have a dress code. It was something that was agreed upon, something that everybody agreed with. And I think something that is demonstrative of the change in our culture is that you can't just keep things traditionally in place anymore because you just never know, right? Things change uh, and they don't always change for the better. So in this case, it's a bipartisan bill. It came from Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Utah Republican Senator Mitt Romney, uh, both of whom I think will not be senators uh, pretty soon, required that uh, members of the Senate abide by a real dress code, meaning they voted on it. And what they said is you got to wear a business attire rather than an unwritten custom that was before when on the Senate floor. And they made it need a two-thirds vote to change. So no majority leader can just come in and say, yeah, you can wear whatever you want. That's gone. And so a two-thirds vote. It passed unanimously. So they had to pull Fetterman aside and say, no more hoodies, dude. You can't do it. Uh, and, you know, that must have been a a crazy conversation. Just all the things that uh, have to get done, right? That's uh, that's getting done. You know, he came into the Senate last week wearing not his hoodie, but instead he had this really old-looking button-down shirt that was very loosely fitting, and then his shorts and his flip-flops. And I, th- I looked at him and I thought, that's what I wear around the house when I don't want to be seen. Like, I've got an old pair of torn Costco cargo shorts, all men have those shorts, by the way, and uh, an old button-down shirt that maybe I have or an old T-shirt or something that even my wife would be upset if I just went outside to walk the dog in it. It doesn't even qualify as dog-walking outfit. That's what he came into the Senate to preside. I mean, you know, when different senators will come in and preside over the proceedings, and they'll stand up on the, uh, you know, the, uh, the platform up there in the top with the gavel and do all of that. And I think nobody could stand it. So everybody said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to change that. So here's the funny thing, I think. Although I think there's something, um, there is something inherent in a world today where we don't understand what a woman is, where we seem to not be able to define what a, a woman is. We seem to not be able to define genders and uh, all those kinds of things. Deep down, we still know. And I'm going to give you a, a subtle example here that is in the Senate um, resolution on this. So they passed a resolution. It passed uh, unanimously. Everybody voted for it. Um, and here's what it says about the men. It says it says business attire for everybody, but then it describes business attire for the men. And it says this includes a coat, a tie, and slacks. So no jeans. You can't wear jeans. You can't wear corduroys. You can't wear canvas pants. You got to wear slacks, right? You have to wear a suit, coat, tie, and slacks. Basically a suit. You're going to wear a suit. All right, makes sense, right, guys? You put on the jacket, you put on the tie, you put on the slacks. You know, it doesn't say anything about shoes, but it does say, you know, uh, business attire. So you can't wear the tennis shoes and you can't wear the flip-flops. I think most people understand that. I know it gets confusing. Sometimes I get a wedding invitation or an invitation to some kind of event, you know. And uh, one time I saw one and the the invitation said snappy casual. Uh, What's snappy casual? Do you know that? How would you define that? I figured it meant 
jeans and a collared shirt and uh, you know maybe I'd wear shoes. Uh but you know people have people come up with stuff, but I think business attire people pretty much know. So it's very specific for men. It's just a two-page resolution. You can go online and read it. But here's what I thought is funny. It doesn't even attempt to put together a dress code for women in the Senate. It says nothing other than business attire in general. It says nothing about what that means for the women. And I think that's smart coming from a guy's perspective. That is uh, probably a wise choice. And there is some history to that. In uh, the House of Representatives, the other chamber, uh, in 2017, House Speaker Paul Ryan Relax the rules on attire after dozens, dozens of congresswomen objected to a prohibition in their dress code on displaying bare arms. Is that a thing, ladies? I, I imagine it is. In, in, in a business suit. My wife has business suits that are suits, but if you took the jacket off, it still has a very nice vest. It's very modest. And, uh, but her arms are you know, exposed. It's not a tank top, right? It's not something you would wear, but there's probably other outfits. See, and I'm, I'm already losing because I don't know what anything is called. My wife has many things in the closet that I don't know what they are. She has things in the shower. I don't know what those things are for. You know, I've got a bar of soap and a washcloth. That's pretty good. You know, for me, if the bottle says shampoo on it, that's good enough. I don't need all the rest of it anyway. But uh, my wife would disagree with all of that, even for me. Anyway, you see why it's smart? See, I'm just saying here there is a difference that we have to acknowledge between men and women. God made us this way. It's on purpose, and I think it's good by the way, I'm glad for this difference. You know, my wife, if I am putting on an outfit and it's not appropriate for where we're going, my wife would define whatever snappy casual is or business casual or business, whatever it is. She's got it in her mind what I should look like. And uh, Christy, she has said this to me many times, although I'm better trained today, but she would say to me, if I'm dressing up for something, she wouldn't say that's an inappropriate outfit which is probably what I would actually prefer be said, to be frank. Instead, she looks at me and she goes, is that what you're wearing? That's happened a lot in our marriage. Uh, Are you wearing that? And uh, the answer to that question is, no, I guess not. And I go uh, try something else. And uh, sometimes it's two or three different times. Uh, But, you know, the truth is, is I'm glad that she does that because I don't know. You know, there's a passage in James where it talks about the... uh, you know, the foolish man looks in the mirror and doesn't make any changes, right? In that passage in James where it talks about the man who looks in the mirror and sees himself and walks away and doesn't make any changes, and that that's the foolish guy just like us when we look into the Scriptures and we read it and we understand it and we don't make any changes. You know what's interesting about that passage? In an era where there is a lot of Bible translation that will translate, you know, generic people as men and women or brothers and sisters— and that is what it means, okay, in the context, even though historically it would have just been men or brothers, okay? In that passage, it's a different word. The word there is men. The word there is not female. It's man, like a man who looks in the mirror and notices that he looks like a slob, but he doesn't change. See, women don't do that, generally, right? Women go to the mirror and examine themselves, and, and if they see something wrong, they'll go fix it. If I see something wrong, I'll say, oh, it's a bad hair day, and I'll just keep going. The Senate has realized this, and I think it's kind of funny. That's smart. Another thing that happened in the Senate for the ladies' dress code is in 2019. See, this has been coming up for a while. The attire for women in the Senate was relaxed after the Senate Rules Committee chair, Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, pushed for a change so women could wear sleeveless dresses. So here you have in the House, 
women saying, I want to be able to wear an outfit with uh, bare arms. And in the Senate now, also sleeveless dresses, that should be allowed. And I'm going to say it because it's the obvious joke. Do you think that they argued that we have a right to bear arms? Obviously. Somebody had to say that. Somebody out there had, ah, yeah, that's what it is. Anyway, uh, and it's funny that that would come up and the men acquiesced. And I think that the men up there on Mount Olympus in the United States Senate obviously have learned the lesson here that you don't tell the women of the Senate how to dress and uh, you just leave it up to them. Business attire, and they can define what that means. Do you agree with that, ladies? Is that wise for the guys? 888-528-2557. 888-528-2557. You don't get a lot of wisdom coming out of the uh, United States Senate, but uh, I feel like that's a good deal. Do you guys uh, have uh, the uh, you know women in your lives or uh, other people tell you how to dress? Do you listen to that? Yeah, Wilbert, do you ever, uh, you ever get somebody say to you, uh, you know what, uh, are you, is that what you're going to wear? Yes, for my girlfriend. Yeah, so she tells you that? Yeah, anytime we go out, she's like, are you sure? <laughs> I'm a big, like, graphic T-shirt kind of guy, so uh-huh. she's always like, can we get things besides graphic shirts? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a thing that I eventually had to learn, right, is that uh, you just, you, you know, the, the T-shirt with the video game on it, uh, you can't do it. It, I love it, but apparently it's not professional. <laughs> it's not. It's it's comfortable, right? But uh, you know, not always the best uh, things. And that's that's a great part for us guys to have uh, some woman in our life to uh, inform us how to dress, yes. even though it's a little bit, uh, you know, you, you know how to dress, how to moisturize, how to. Yeah. See, I still don't understand all of that. <laughs> what is all this stuff for? Why are there so many things in the shower? I don't know what these things are for. What do I have? I got a bar of soap and I got a razor and I got a bottle of shampoo. It just says shampoo on it. That's a two it. in one. Two in one. I, you know, I think the one I have is five in one, but I don't know what those five things are. What I know is it was the big bottle at Costco and I grabbed it. It was on sale and it said shampoo on the bottle. That was good enough. I don't know what the brand is. I don't know what those other five things are doing. I know that when I hit the pump thing, the shampoo comes out. My hair appears to be clean and I'm good to go. But, you know, I promise you, and Christy, if you're listening, I know you're going to tell me when you get home. She'll know what those other five things are and uh, whether or not it's good enough shampoo. And that is good. The whole point of all this is not to make fun, but to point out that men and women are different, and it's okay. That's why we work well together. That is how we are made uh, to do things. And uh, anyway, the guys up there at the Senate fixed the clothing problem, and I don't think they're going to hear any problems from the ladies who are going to work it out on their own, and it will be fine, uh, whatever that is. This is the Pastor Scott Show. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the debate and the spin room that I got to hang out in. And and uh, y'all saw me on the uh, Fox News because I was stuck there, but uh, I was there uh, the whole night. We'll be back as with Hour 2 as the Pastor Scott Show continues. You can follow us on social media. Just look for at Pastor Scott Show. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.